Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Conversations on Dance is proud to have Yumiko as a continued partner in 2021. Yumiko is a company inspired by beauty and standards. As a leader in the dancewear industry, they take great pride in their impact as a socially and environmentally conscious brand. This month, Yumiko introduced six new mesh tones available for all personalized pieces. And as a summer celebration, Yumiko is offering a special in-store discount to our New York City listeners. Show that you are subscribed to Conversations on Dance at checkout to receive a 10% discount on your in-store purchase. Visit yumiko.com for store hours, and be sure to follow along on Instagram, at Yumiko, to stay up to date. Special thanks to the town of Vail for their support of the Vail Dance Festival and Conversations on Dance live podcast recordings. This episode was recorded at the Manor Vale Lodge. Hello, everyone. Before we get started today, I just wanted to uh, give a quick note about this episode. We did have some technical difficulties with the sound on one of the microphones, um, so it did take a little bit longer to edit and fix up. But we did hear from quite a few of you um, wondering where this episode was and when we were going to post it. And it really was a great, great episode. And so we still wanted to make sure that we shared it, even though the sound was not perfect. So we do apologize in advance. But we really, really hope that you will enjoy this super fun um, conversation. This is our final uh, live recorded episode from Vale. We did nine whole episodes from there. So um, if you missed any of them, be sure to go back and check out the feed. We have uh, nine more episodes with festival artists that will be coming your way. Um, so we have a lot of other exciting content as well, not just from Vale, from other places and other things that are coming up. So be sure to stay tuned and subscribe to Conversations on Dance wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to rate and review us as well if you like what you've been hearing. Um, just lastly, we want to thank all of you for your support. It was so wonderful to see so many people in Vail, um, to connect with all of you. We've been getting lots of messages from people saying that they really enjoyed um, the content coming out. And so it just means so much to us. And we love when you all reach out to us. Um, it really makes us feel good. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, <laughs> everyone. 
Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. Uh, Rebecca and I were both former dancers with the Miami City Ballet, and we now host the podcast, Conversations on Dance. And we've been hosting these um, chats every morning here at Festival Forums since the festival began, and we have two more talks coming up uh, through the end of the festival. Yeah, so after um, these events, we record them, as you know, and we put them out on our podcast, um, which you can access wherever you get your podcasts, or you can visit our website. We also have some cards in the front if you want to grab those for more information. If you missed any of these, you can listen to all of them after the fact, or listen again if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, so today we are joined by choreographer Justin Peck and triple threat Robbie Fairchild. <laughs> um, so I think, Justin, you've been on several times, and maybe some of these guys have heard our podcast with you, but Robbie, this is your first time. I think it would be great if both of you could just start with a little bit about how you first became involved in dance. Mm. Well, my sister, Megan Fairchild, is a principal of New York City Ballet. She's three years older than I am, and she would come home when she was six years old and I was three, and she would be doing her routines in the living room, and I was hooked. I would try and follow everything that she did, even wear her old tutus. And, um, <laughs> was incriminating footage for sure. Um, and then it wasn't until so my sister got me into dance, and then I always say Gene Kelly is the one who made me want to be a dancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was when Valentine's Day, like 1993, Gene Kelly had just passed away, and my mom was like, "You've never seen Sing in the Rain. You've never seen Gene Kelly." Performed, so she bought me the VHS as my Valentine's Day present, Aww. and it was—I mean, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. And uh, was really into jazz dancing. I wanted to be a song and dance man, and then I wanted to go to LA and do music videos. And <laughs> Janet Jackson and Britney Spears wanted to be in those music videos. And my sister saw a competition video of me uh, of mine, and she said, "Ooh, you could really use some work on your technique in a very nice sisterly way." <laughs> And she said, you should, you know, I know you want to be a jazz dancer, but if, if, if you want to be a good jazz dancer, ballet is the basis for all technique. Mm-hmm. So why don't you audition for the School of American Ballet, see if you get in, it would be a great way to become a better jazz dancer. This is so funny that I'm telling this story with you in the room, because the first day <laughs> of the School of American Ballet summer course, there's the ice cream social. Uh-huh. And you were not eating ice cream. You were in the ballet studio with your foot up to your ear. And I can't do that kind of stuff. This is Jazzerina who showed up at a ballet summer course. And I remember seeing you do that and that foot of yours. And people started asking me questions and my voice was cracking. I just felt so uncomfortable. I was like, what am I doing here? I'm not a ballet dancer. Um, but then I think that's the summer we met each other, right? I think so, yeah. 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 Uh, I don't know if we were roommates then or sweet mates, but I mean, once, once you go to the School of American Ballet and you get to learn from Peter Bull during the day and see him do Oberon at night in Midsummer Night's Dream, it's kind of the end-all be-all. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, I yeah. want to be a ballet dancer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if anyone heard Damien speak about what inspired him as a dancer, and he talked a lot about Jacques Demois and Eddie Valella and Misha Baryshnikov, and those are definitely very uh, important uh, references for any male dancer. But I think mm-hmm. it's—I I love that Robbie brought up Gene Kelly, especially mm-hmm. because that, for me too, was like such a, a point of inspiration from such a young age, um, especially for me. Um, 
growing up in Southern California and just like having to rely on, uh, you know, film footage, that kind of thing. And, and for any, any young, uh, male dancer anywhere throughout the country or the world, I think like that's such a access point to what dance is and, you know, films like singing in the rain or even West side story for me, like as a kid watching that and being like, Oh, like there's, storytelling through dance here there's a kind of like grittiness to the movement um there's clearly a a sense of like um technique with um how these artists are moving through space and so that was that was definitely a big reference for me and and also i think for me as a kid um my family would bring me to new york every summer that was like our big family trip we would go for a week every summer uh for as long as i can remember and my parents would just take us to go see a bunch of theater that's really um was how i became exposed to, to theater and in particular dance. Um, that's really what I was fascinated by. And, um, and there's certain shows that, that I really remember seeing that made a strong impression on me. And the one that I I've spoken about a lot, um, but I'll say it again is, uh, bring in, bring into noise, bring into funk, uh, with Savion Glover. Um, and it was the first time I really saw, um, that kind of rhythm tap dance on stage. And I, didn't know what it was. I was nine years old when I saw this. Mm -hmm. I just knew that I was so uh, enamored by, um, by the kind of balance between movement performance and, uh, and musicianship that exists Mm -hmm. in the tap dance form. And so that was my way into, uh, into dance. So I, I got home, I got back to California and I told my parents, like, I want to learn more about what this form is. And so I just started to take tap dance lessons, classes, Mm -hmm. and that eventually led to to jazz. And -hmm. and then ballet was the last thing for me as well. It was kind of (laughs) like, I sort of fought it for as long as I could. (laughs) And when I was 13, uh, going on 14, I saw a performance by American Ballet Theater. They toured through Mm -hmm. San Diego, like, um, by some miracle because they've never been back there since they came like once Wow! yeah and it was this one they came for you yeah Yeah, it was it was my first exposure to some of these um male dancers in Mm -hmm. particular because i hadn't seen um ballet dancers on that level and that was like one of those life altering moments for me where i was like i really want to um to uh throw myself into this other form, which is ballet. Mm-hmm. And, and actually it's important for me to, um, to note that when I saw ABT perform, Armand Cornejo was in the court of ballet or he was a soloist wow. and he was dancing peasant pot. So he was like, you know, probably in his early twenties and had wow. just started dancing with the company. And so it's like a big full circle moment to get to work with him now mm-hmm. here in Vail. Oh my right. gosh. I love that. So it sounds like you, we both kind of were more interested in theater at first, but then we caught the ballet bug. Mm-hmm. So was there a moment when you're at school of American ballet where you considered going into the theater arena at all, or was it just sort of blinders on, now we're gonna try to join a company? Well, I think, is this on? <laughs> well, am I on? Is this thing I don't on? No. Yeah. But I'll just keep going? Yeah, okay, I great. think so. 
Uh, you can edit that part out. <laughs> um, it was, uh, I think, the the part of the ballet world that just got me is the um, uh, the perfectionist side of me. Um, you're able to really monitor your your progress. You either hit f- fifth position or there it is. <laughs> you either hit fifth position or you don't. Mm-hmm. And in jazz, there's a lot of zhizhing. Like, <laughs> you fall out of something and you plan B is better than plan A. Jazz, mm-hmm. it's improv. And um, so I I wanted to see how far I could go. Mm-hmm. And I always went to theater. I always. Was I mean I went and saw Hair seven times when I was in the ballet company because I think it was such a departure from um, the ballet world. Seeing artists up there just so free, seeing their faces off uh, about freedom and and in, in a ballet world you you have these confines of the, the classical art form and you find your freedom within those confines and and so I was. I was in the ballet world, appreciating the theater world, going, okay, I want to do that someday. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but not now. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the, the golden time for a ballet dancer is really like 30 to 33, because it's when your artistry matches your physical ability. And then after 33 or something like that, you know, you start to feel certain things, and uh, your artistry continues to grow, because you have life experiences that, that, that teach you about yourself, and and how to relate to another person on stage and your comfortability in front of an audience. Um, <clears throat> so I always thought, okay, when I'm like 35, I'll like, you know, I'll try and like transition. <laughs> when I don't look good in white tights anymore, like <laughs> put me in a jazz shoe and a, and a, and a slack. Um, and so it wasn't until, you know, uh, there was a New York City Ballet Gala and we were kind of honoring Fred Astaire. And uh, I was tap dancing in a Valentino tuxedo with a cane and um, living my Broadway life on the City Ballet stage. Christopher Wielden comes up to me at the gala dinner and says, hey, can you sing? And I said, depends on who's listening. (laughs) That's when he said, I want to take you out to to dinner. I have a project I'm working on. And then Mm -hmm. yada, yada, American Paris. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, for me, I think coming to the School of American Ballet in my mind was like my ticket to get to New York City. Mm. And I was still so uh, new to the form. Like I I discovered or I became inspired by ballet uh, when I, right before I turned 14. And then I came to the School of American Ballet um, right before I turned 16. So it was a pretty like fast mm-hmm. uh, process. And for me, I was just like, trying to learn as much as I could about ballet. I didn't know very much about Balanchine or the School of American Ballet even or mm-hmm. New York City Ballet. And I I just knew that they had this great program, training program in New York with like a dormitory. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I could go live in New York maybe. Yeah. Um, and when I got to New York and I started to become exposed to the works of George Balanchine and Jerome Robbins and then a lot of other dance makers 
making work uh, at Lincoln Center and the, you know, the dancers of the company and the, the, um, the energy of the other students at the school, I just became um, really intrigued by, mm-hmm. um, by the, the, this, this ballet world and sort of just like dove into it and wasn't sure where it was going. I felt like I had to play a lot of catch up because I started so late. Like I, I came to the school and I was in like the intermediate level, which is like the lowest level you could get into, um, as a, as a, uh, a dorm student. And so I just spent like three or four years working as hard as I could to catch up and, um, by some small miracle, I was invited to join New York City Ballet and that journey just kind of like carried forward. Um, but my interest in theater uh, and in, in film was always there. I think like mm-hmm. it was all part of this like massive swirl of curiosity. Right. So just put a pin on it. Yeah, I feel like maybe, so both of you kind of maybe were attracted to SAB and New York City Ballet for the element of New York and being close to Broadway. Um, once you started <laughs> dancing there though, maybe was when you were first introduced, like you say, to Balanchine and the Balanchine technique. And as jazz dancers, is that something that you drew towards immediately? Was it a little different than your initial styles that you had learned? I know, Justin, you said you started a little later, but... Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why I was so attracted to New York City Ballet in particular as a ballet company, ah, it's jazz dancing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, um, there is Americana, there is this New York City, um, uh, energy in the way that Balanchine taught his dancers to dance. Mm -hmm. Um, how high, how fast, how, you know, it's mm-hmm. it, my, one of my favorite ballets to dance is uh, Duo Concertant. And I thought to myself, why? This is, and it's because it's literally tap dancing with ballet slippers. Mm-hmm. It's just <laughs> fast footwork flying across the stage. And, um, you know, I've done the Prince in Sleeping Beauty, I've done the Prince in Swan Lake, and I finished those performances and thought, Oh my God, I did it. It wasn't like, okay, and then next time we're going to do this. I was like, okay, one and done. <laughs> that was so fun. And it was, it's like the reason why I joined, the, the reason why I started ballet was to see how far I could go. Mm. And I loved the challenge. But put me in a, in a ballet slipper and, and fast footwork flying across the stage like, um, like Gene Kelly in a ballet company. Like that... And that there's a place for that in New York City Ballet. Like that, that's what, for me, what, what drew me to the Balanchine style and what made me want to be a ballet dancer mm-hmm. is that jazziness. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. makes total sense. I mean, Balanchine always said his favorite dancer was Fred Astaire. So that connection feels pretty easy. Yeah. 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 I mean, I definitely, it was an adjustment for me because I, the, the, Ballet training that existed in San Diego was much more Russian-based, Vaganova, kind of slow, uh, less emphasis on musicality and more emphasis on, like, technique. Mm -hmm. And so I was, like, really uh, blown away by Mm -hmm. the Balanchine technique Mm -hmm. and style and, um, and the challenges of that and also how that eventually like informed my own work as a choreographer, because I really feel like he, you know, Balanchine and everyone who 
who developed the the style and the technique at the school laid the groundwork for um, for how all these dancers move and I have the privilege of just kind of like standing on the shoulders of all that and harnessing this style and this technique and seeing how far we can push it, you know, further into the future. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of where, where I'm at with it. Yeah. Um, so Robbie, you've been featured in some of Justin's most celebrated ballets. Obviously you guys have a great friendship, but you have a great artistic relationship. So what do you think it is about being in the studio together that makes such a fruitful, um, partnership? Well, I think you can tell we both have the same kind of introduction to dance. It's the same we play. I think every time we're still in ballet class, we feel like we're playing catch up to the rest of the group who's been dancing like fifth position since they were four years old. <laughs> um, there is, you know, when we were in the School of American Ballet, we were roommates. And we, this is before, there was a San Francisco Ballet summer course audition. Um, on a Saturday. We were up till about like, what, two in the morning playing Dance Dance Revolution, <laughs> which is, which is uh, there was like the, the at-home version where it was just these pads and you played through the PlayStation on your TV. And we, it was like, it was tap dancing, you know, up, up, mm-hmm. da, 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 like, with a rhythm. And uh, we were addicted to it. And we woke up the next morning and we couldn't do the audition because we were, you know, the dorm room is just concrete. So we had shin splints and we couldn't do the San Francisco Summer Course audition. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But like, I think, I don't know, I feel like we have a very similar, we're the same generation, we're the same uh, same influences, the same love for um, possibilities and, um, yeah, I think that's, I'll never forget right when you started choreographing for the company and we were in the studio working on increases, you, I, it had started to feel a little bit like, and I know this is a crazy thing to say because you can't really say that you're in a drought when you're in a company with rep from Balanchine and Robbins, but I think Anybody who was around during the time when they were creating the most amazing thing about New York City Ballet is the the creative energy force, the choreographic, just like um, the lifeblood is just in the new work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had started to feel a little like mm, getting the itch to do something, mm-hmm. and then this one came along, <laughs> and it just you know kind of blew everything out the window. I got to bring so much of um, what we, what our DNA is and as dancers into, it just felt very, very current, very, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's something really special, um, about the fact that we kind of grew up together. I think that's like something that you can't, recreate you can't like fake that or recreate it it's like something that just exists it's just a circumstance and um and there's something extraordinary about that and and that familiarity and that understanding of one another um that can then be incorporated into like a process a creative process Mm -hmm. um and then also like to me robbie is like a real storyteller through his um, his 
dance interpretations. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's hard to come by. And, um, and it's, it's something that's really natural for him. And, um, and I don't know if anyone saw the performance last night, but I feel like, okay, good. (laughs) Because when I feel like Robbie, comes out on stage you just believe him like mm. you he he can do he can walk across the stage and it's like he brings a real sense of belief in dance and dance communication and mm-hmm. you can't that doesn't exist in like 99% of the dancers mm. and i certainly feel that when i watch him perform and and i feel lucky to be able to um, be in partnership with him uh, whenever we're working together. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and I miss him at New York City Ballet. I was telling him this morning, I was like, it was so nice to see him out there, like mm-hmm. in this kind of repertoire again, because mm-hmm. it's been a while. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of like special currents running through. Yeah. Justin, I wonder if um, any of those Dance Dance Revolution moves ever made it into any of your battles. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this is a good... I'm glad Robbie told that story because <laughs> we didn't think much of it at the time. We, we were just having a good time. And then, uh, you know, we couldn't do that San Francisco ballet summer course audition. No big deal. Um, but then cut to... I don't know. It was like 15 years later. And I was... Uh, creating a ballet called The Times Are Racing, um, which is this, like, to me, it was a very um, daring piece of music to tackle. It's a, it's a relatively, like, abrasive score by Dan Deacon, and I was a little nervous about how it was going to come across uh, to our New York City ballet audiences, and there's a lot of percussion in it, and there's one section where um, I really thought back to that moment when Robbie and I were playing Dance Dance Revolution and I was like, I want to create a duet that's inspired by that moment and that the kind of like um, uh, synchronicity of, of two bodies moving together through space and doing the kind of like exact same choreography. And this was a rare moment where I actually put myself into the ballet because I just wanted to dance in a sneaker. <laughs> and, um, and so, and yeah, we made this duet um, and you can actually watch it on YouTube. We created a short film um, of this section where Robbie and I kind of carved through um, one of the New York City subway stations. And it's, uh, it's actually very much inspired by the, the, um, the film work that involves Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and um, the the sequence is, is a single uh, camera take so it's almost three minutes long and it's one continuous take so we really had to nail it um, and there was no kind of like masking what we were doing uh, on, on film and it took us I think Robbie had just taken a red eye back to New York from a gig <laughs> so he showed up not so fresh in the morning but with a good attitude um, and we did that sequence like 12 or 13 times before wow. we got it and it was about 40 degrees in the subway station and we were dance again dancing on concrete there we were <laughs> so I tell you when we were like like 
three quarters of the way through and somebody would walk through the frame <gasps> no. or something would happen that, oh my word. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, no! <laughs> I swear I didn't know the answer to that question. I'm so glad I asked that. I thought it was just going to be a joke. But <laughs> so, cool. so we could sit here all day and talk about your careers at New York City Ballet. I mean, you became a principal dancer, you became a resident choreographer, but um, we don't have all day, unfortunately. So I want to hear a little bit about how you guys finally got to live a little bit of that Broadway dream. Obviously, Robbie, you told us a little tidbit about how Christopher Wielden approached you. And Justin, I'm curious later to hear about how you made that jump to choreographing for theater. So let's start with Robbie. So Chris asked me if I would audition, um, and he said, you're the first one. We're just doing it in the um, music director's apartment. So be the book writer, Craig Lucas, music director, Rob Fisher, and myself, Christopher Wheeler. <laughs> and I was so nervous. Um, I went and took some class, some singing lessons, prepared some Gershwin tunes. And I said before uh, I started singing, I was like, can I just face the wall? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm standing towards the wall in my audition in this brownstone apartment. And um, it was the beginning of a, a long process. I think they realized that because Chris wanted it to be um, dance heavy, it's his directorial debut. Mm-hmm. Um, you lead with your best foot forward. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to really uh, bring ballet to Broadway. Mm. And uh, so it was the beginning of like a year and a half journey where um, the music director really believed in me. He set me up with his, um, the person that he thought would be a great vocal coach for me. So every Monday um, on our day off, I would be taking acting lessons and singing lessons. And then right before the last audition, um, John Stafford, who was dancing the Prince in Sleeping Beauty, gets injured. And I haven't been learning it. I don't know it at all. Uh, and you're going to throw this jazz dancer in the white tights uh, with like three, two and a half weeks to spare. So I get thrown into the Prince and Sleeping Beauty, gearing up for the big, big audition for American in Paris. It was all culminating at the same time. And I go into my audition. I did pretty well. Probably was terrible. But... Um, I was, it was intermission at, for my dress rehearsal uh, for Sleeping Beauty, and I go up and I'm changing into my white tunic, and I see a missed call from Christopher Wielden. And it says, Rob, uh, oh no, he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I think I've got the wrong number. I'm looking for a Jerry Mulligan. <laughs> and I say that, I have to this day, and he goes, Rob, the part's yours if you want it. Um, <laughs> we'll have to have a really serious talk, you know, because that meant asking for a leave of absence from the company at this point. Um, uh, you know, it's when you go to your director and say, I got another job, um, they're like, okay, you, your, your sights are elsewhere. So I clock that. Um, but at this point, I was 26, and I felt like I still had so much to do with the ballet company. And... So I, um, once American Paris happened and the contracts were all written up, I went to Peter's office and I said, I love working here. I just can't turn this opportunity down to dance the role that Gene Kelly made. Mm-hmm. No one else has played Jerry Mulligan up to this point, and that would be like so close to my idol. And he goes, I get it, I get it. Mm-hmm. And I said, what can I do to ensure some sort of place for me when I 
return. And he goes, if you make an effort to uh, have a presence in every ballet, in every season of the ballet, then I think that we can, you know, negotiate something here. So here I am, going down to six shows a week on Broadway because I'm so exhausted and my knees are just like balloons. And um, I'm going in on a Saturday matinee and a Wednesday evening to perform at City Ballet. And the funny thing is, is that I'm coming back to dance Who Cares. Uh, and I, what I realized when I was on stage is that I've been singing Liza for like eight shows a week, and then here I am dancing it on my mm -hmm. night off, mm -hmm. uh, which was just so surreal. Um, but yeah, it, it was three months into Broadway, standing in an ice bucket up to my knees. My mom calls me and said, so we've been cleaning out the basement, and we just found a letter that you wrote when you were in fourth grade. You're not gonna believe it. I'm like, what is it? <laughs> and uh, he goes, it's called My, my Special Place. My special place is on Broadway. Because there's this guy named Gene Kelly, and he's a dancer just like me. And I want to be on Broadway someday. And I also want to be in a movie. It's <laughs> the dream I had for myself when I was, when I was what, 10 years old, and I didn't really know what Broadway was. I just knew that Gene Kelly did it, and I want to do it. And so to be sitting there in an ice bath, knowing that no one else had played Gene Played Jerry Mulligan up until this point, you're just thinking, oh my god, like this mm. is the coolest moment to date. And that's yeah. that kind of wraps up that whole experience for me. It was it was a magical, magical time. Mm. How about you, Justin, Amazing. with Carousel? Yeah, um, I choreographed the uh, 2018 revival of Carousel, and I was really lucky because I got to work with Jack O'Brien, who's one of the uh, most incredible veteran uh, theater directors. And it's an interesting uh, sort of like ships in the night story because he ran the Old Globe Theater in San Diego for uh, over 20 years, I think. So the whole time growing up for me in San Diego, I would see, you know, sometimes I would be around Balboa Park, which is where the Old Globe Theater is, and I would see posters. And I remember seeing his name, like directed by Jack O'Brien. So that was always like ingrained in my in my mind and um, and so since that moment he had come back to uh, he had been back in New York for some time and you know he he's the uh, the director credited for um, developing and uh, and directing Hairspray for example mm -hmm. that's like a, another big show of his and so I what was amazing about that experience was I got to really learn from him it was he really took me under his wing like we spent so much time together he like he he did things like insisting that we commute together every morning um to rehearsals and to previews and to tech and so i would meet him at his apartment we both lived on the upper west side and we would spend uh, you know, 40 minutes every morning driving down and then, yeah, <laughs> and 40 minutes at the end of the day, like coming home, we would start and end our days together and we would just kind of like be together all day. And so, um, and I learned just so much from him about, um, how to kind of run a room and how to set the tone and the energy and how to communicate with artists and cast members. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was really, um, 
helpful, I think, for me as as a choreographer than to return to New York City Ballet and continue mm. uh, my work there and and how I uh, communicated with um, with the the artists at, at yeah. City Ballet. But um, but yeah, it was it was a relatively fast process as far as Broadway goes. Like we didn't do an out of town run or anything. We, we opened at the Imperial theater, um, after working on it for probably less than a year. And, um, and you know, there's some advantage in the fact that it's a revival, right? So it's like, we all kind of know what the show is. And of course we want to add our own personal touch to what, what, what it's going to become. Um, but the, backbone of it is there and um and so yeah i think like luckily there was space given for it to be a very dance centric production of carousel Mm -hmm. and so i was able to really um develop movement for the show and um and cut my teeth uh you know in the Broadway world through the experience of, of such a historic and iconic classic musical. So I I loved the experience. It was amazing. It was, um, it was a lot of work. Um, but it was so rewarding too. And you won a freaking Tony. I was just going to (laughs) say, literally rewarding. Um, (laughs) That was a fun night. (laughs) So I'm wondering about some of the differences with that experience. Obviously in New York City Ballet, you can pick any dancer you want. It's your ballet. Um, I mean, I imagine you get your pick of who you want. Um, But obviously with a show like this, you have to, you have other considerations. You might have the best dancer, but if they can't sing a note, I mean, you can take some people off mic, but it gets a little dicey. Right. There's a, that's, I'm glad you bring that up because there's a constant negotiation happening with casting a show. And it's usually, it's very difficult to find triple threats Mm -hmm. on Broadway. So Robbie's like a rare exception, but Mm -hmm. there's always like this kind of like, uh, tension that exists between the music director and the choreographer, I found. <laughs> like, not just on Carousel, but on like most projects where it's like, you know, you have to either prioritize the dancing side of things or the singing side of things. And, um, and occasionally there's someone who really has both. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that can be challenging. And uh, yeah, I think I'm sure there were there were those kinds of negotiations going on with, you know, the whole cast of An American in Paris as well. Oh, too. for sure. I mean, my acting teacher, I love her so much because she doesn't, uh, she's just such a truth teller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, after we, after like the performance has started in American in Paris, she just comes up to me and it was a sentimental moment. She goes, Robbie, when you st- first started with me, you reading a scene was was like you reading out of a dictionary. Like reading a dictionary. <laughs> that, that was like exciting as it got. And, you know, I, they knew that they wanted it to be a dance-heavy show, and so they knew that they were going to have to... They were going to find somebody who had maybe, like, two of the two of the requirements. Mm-hmm. Could sing and dance, and then you'll have to teach them how to act. Or could dance and act and teach them how to sing. For me, it was dancing and singing and teach me how to act. I also really need to like teach me how to sing because I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, but it was it was very that, and I I uh, that's what what made me uh, work so hard is that I I knew how much work I had to do, and also I think 
loving the theater like we do, stepping into like the lead role of a Broadway show, and you're surrounded by people have, who have been in uh, acting classes and, and, and singing classes there just as long as you've been holding your ballet bar, to um, out of respect for the work that they've done, don't just assume you can go up in there and get Mike and right. do it. Like, put in the work. There's so much work that you have to do to, to um, honor what they do. And I think that was the great thing about American in Paris is that the actors and singers had to learn how to dance and the dancers had to learn how to sing and act. So everyone was out of their comfort zone and there was uh -huh. appreciation for everyone in the room. Yeah. Everyone was freaking out a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, Robbie, let's circle back to that note that you wrote as a young boy. Also, film and movies was involved in that note. So, of course, both of you now have experience in that field. So, Robbie, tell us a little bit about Cats and Justin Westside. Meow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a journey that was. Um, I, yeah, you know, I, I got an agent after an American Paris, and um, here I get this request to do a self-tape for Cats. And I was like, what? You're making a Cats film? I was like, I need a job. And so I put myself on tape for actually Rum Tum Tugger, which is not me at all. And uh, they were like, okay, this is promising. Read for Monkestrap, which is like the, the, the leader of the tribe, the, the kind of narrator of sorts. And I was like, okay, this is much more my style. And so I sent in the video. Um, and then a week later, they were like, we're gonna pay for you to come to London to work with Tom Hooper in the room. And Wayne McGregor was the slated to be the choreographer at the time. So um, at that time, I was filming, uh, I was making a dance film, and I had 24 hours, which I could go to London before I had to go and perform with the San Diego Symphony. So, I am on a red eye, and as soon as I get on the plane, I get a message saying they want you to read for Mr. Mistopheles as well. I didn't know the song, and so here I am trying to get sleep on this red eye and learn this song. So I show up to the studios at like 9 a.m., and they have like showers for me so I can get a little like freshen up, and then my call time's at 11 a.m. And I go into the room, and Wayne, Wayne is there. Wayne had done the ballet at New York City Ballet that I was in. I really enjoyed working with him. And he had been in the room for all the auditions. And he goes, okay, sing me your song before he gets in here. What are you going to do? <laughs> so I sing it. He goes, great. That's at like a seven energy level. Uh -huh. Bring it down to a two. Uh -huh. He doesn't want oh. you to do anything. Interesting. Oh. And so I'm like, really? Okay. So he gets in the room, and they turn on the little camera to record your audition. And I'm just literally doing nothing. <laughs> and I just saw Tom Hooper's face kind of light up. And, you know, say what you will about the end product of the film, but getting to work with Dame Judi Dench, Sir Ian McKellen, Robert Wilson, I mean, the list goes on and on. There's literally everyone under the sun, Taylor Swift, Jennifer Hudson, being in the room uh, with everyone watching them in their craft uh, was pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. And it was like a lesson you were, you, you were, you were in an acting class, you were watching masters mm -hmm. perform these wild T.S. Eliot poems to song. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was, it was an incredible experience, one that I'm so grateful to have had. Um, and like I say, if you're going to be in a bad film, be in the worst one. <laughs> 
Yeah. That like becomes the cult classic in me. Like, right? yeah. you're, like, you'll get the royalties. <laughs> but it was it was an incredible experience, and you know you sometimes you learn a lot, and sometimes you know mm-hmm. it's just always a different experience. So I I um I'll never forget in between takes Judy Dench teaching me her favorite Shakespeare sonnets, or um, playing Bananagrams with her, and her vision is her vision is really poor, and so Bananagrams had made large tiles for her to be able to see, and it was just so special to get those moments with those uh-huh. people. So. Yeah. You know what I think is special about your appearance in Cats in relation to what we were talking about is that it, your acting is really the crux of what you're doing, and you opened the film, and you really you drew us in, oh, yeah, and um, I think true. that you should be really proud of how far your acting mm. has come from reading the dictionary. One thing I'll add is that, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber um, was kind of what Gene Kelly was to introducing us to dance. Um, he, he was my introduction into theater. I remember going to soccer practice when I was eight years old, blasting the family opera in the car. And <laughs> what a contrast, right? <laughs> but from, I remember singing the first song when he was in the room, and I just had... The, every hair on my body was standing on end because I realized this is the man that made me fall in love with theater. Mm. See what you will about cats. Like, <laughs> he, you know, when he, it was the intro to mm-hmm. what we love. Right. Yeah. How about you, Justin? Tell us a little bit about West Side Story. Sure. I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to share it with yeah. everyone. It's been delayed, out. unfortunately. Yeah. So. It comes out in December mm-hmm. of this year. Um, there's so much to say about it. Honestly, like, I feel like we could do a whole nother episode. Sure. Um, I will say like, just talking about this, these kind of like casting processes, um, we, it was West Side Story was one of the most extensive casting processes I've ever been a part of. Like mm-hmm. we saw thousands and thousands and thousands of people for this film and we traveled far and wide. We went to Uh, Puerto Rico, we went to Miami, we went to um, Los Angeles and New York, obviously, and multiple trips to all these places. And and one thing that I picked up on through that process was that everyone had to be a quadruple threat. And what I mean by that is they had to they had to sing, they had to act, they had to dance, um, but they also had to look right through the camera Mm. like there's something about how um how someone projects um Mm. through the camera that is so specific and sometimes we would find someone who would be like the an amazing singer actor dancer and then steven spielberg um would always audition with a handheld Mm. camera and he would Mm. film uh, every every uh, every actor, every performer, every person in the room there, and sometimes there would be some. I can't explain it. There's something that just like mm-hmm. changes, like from being in person to mm-hmm. um, to being captured on film. Uh, that is <laughs> just like. Just some every once in a while we would see someone and he would be like, they just don't work right. on camera. Mm. Did you ever have and a flip where, where someone you'd be like, I'm not that excited. And then through the lens of the camera. It, yeah, it definitely. Yeah. There's I mean, there's actors who I'm like, I don't I don't understand it. And then I'll see them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on the monitor and I'm like, oh, they're they look like a completely like different yeah 
person mm-hmm. yeah. through the lens. So, um, so that's like one of those ethereal qualities that mm-hmm. I can't quite put my finger on, but it made the casting process even more extensive right. and specific and, um, Luckily, we honed in and we found this incredible uh, cast of this new generation, basically, of mm-hmm. um, of actors, dancers, performers, singers to take on this uh, this iconic uh, piece of American theater, dance, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm the most proud of is that everyone is an authentic dancer mm-hmm. at the, the root of it. Um, you know, some people came in rusty, some people had a lot of work to put in to get there, but at the end of the day, there was no, there's no body doubles. Mm-hmm. There's, um, there's a kind of like high standard for what the dance had to be for this film, obviously, because it's um, the concept uh, of Jerome Robbins. Mm-hmm. And so it's like one of those, uh, pivotal moments in, uh, in dance storytelling yeah, right. throughout our history. And so that is, that was such a priority. And I think like everyone really represented, uh, on mm-hmm. that front. And, um, that's rare, I think, to find that in, right. especially in, uh, in a Hollywood film. Mm-hmm. So. I want to draw a few parallels between that and what you're doing here at the Vale Dance Festival. You're creating a new work that is inspired by Balanchine's Tchaikovsky Potida. And then with West Side Story, of course, you have these, this iconic choreography as well. So in both of these instances, how do you put your own mark on something that is so iconic? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think like it always comes from a place of reverence and, and respect and admiration for what came before. And I think just like having studied both of those works so closely over the years and seeing many, many interpretations and, and actually like being able to like step inside of those works as well. You know, I performed in the West Side Story Suite at New York City Ballet. I, um, I remember learning the Tchaikovsky part of the variation, like at the School of American Ballet, like mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. in variations class. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think it's like, it, I always feel that, uh, dance and especially ballet is an evolutionary art form. And so it's about taking these like incremental steps forward. And I always like playing with the form, you know, with this potata that I created for Vale, it really um, takes root in the classical grand potata form, which is opening with uh, with a duet for the two dancers, going into a variation for the male dancer, a variation for the female dancer, and then wrapping things up with a coda. And that's sort of like an, an out of fashion uh, mm-hmm. structure that no, choreographers just don't, I, for some reason, they're not interested in that. Um, it's something that I've always wanted to do. And luckily here in Vail, um, the composer in residence is Caroline Shaw. And she thinks in a similar way to, uh, to how I think in that she's, she loves some of these historic works. Um, and she has an ability to kind of like, um, sort of riff on them Mm -hmm. and create her own versions that are in conversation with the original. And so that was really like our process was for some reason through our conversations, we honed in on Tchaikovsky Potida. Mm -hmm. I think because it feels like the sort of link between the way back when historic classical potatas of like, you know, Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, Grand Pas Classique. Mm-hmm. 
and then you have this um, this version, which is something that Balanchine made, um, where he plays with that form. And so we just felt like the next that that was like a great stepping stone to then right. jump off of and and try our own version. Uh, and it really involved like we talked about the process a lot, and we kind of like we held up that version and um, and we just kind of like shattered it mm -hmm. and let the pieces fall to the floor. And we were able to like look at what was before us and kind of pick up interesting fragments and things we wanted to like uh, hint at or allude to and started to like reconstruct uh, this new version. And it was really done from a place of, um, of admiration and respect for that. So, um, and it's also like made for like the ballet nerd out there who <laughs> knows the original so well. And I'm sure a lot of you have seen Tchaikovsky Parada because they perform it here quite a bit. Twice and so I wanted it yeah. to be a piece that I wanted it to be a piece that um, that the audience could almost like be in on and that it could be this like collective experience of, you know, something that I was participating in, Tyler Peck's participating in, Herman Cornejo's participating in, but also, and also I want to, I should mention, you know, Brooklyn Ryder, the string quartet and Caroline um, are participating in, but also the, the uh, audience at large so that um, there's this like um, collective geeking out over <laughs> this like ballet form and what, you know, what we're doing with it. That's so perfect for Vale, a collective geek out. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we could sit here and talk to you guys all day. There's so much to mind, but I feel like if we don't turn it over to the audience, they're going to kill us. So uh, I'm sure you guys have lots of questions. Let's start over here. There's a dollar writing on this answer. Okay. <laughs> so being a Subway fan, as well as a ballet fan, we watched the movie, the, the piece again last night. And my question is about the sound. Because you're you're tapping in sneakers on concrete, we can barely hear the tapping here, and yet, so it's like did the sound get added? But it's so good to the footwork that that doesn't seem possible. Yeah, that's a good question. Do you, can can oh, no, I answer? Yeah, 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 I don't yeah, know if you you're, you're, you're good. I mean, we actually so the process of. Uh, making that film was we performed the work and once we get a good take of the visuals, we then go through the whole sequence again with just the sound designer. Mm -hmm. So um, they capture the sounds without any other, I mean there's a little bit of ambient noise around because it's a subway, mm -hmm. but they just like, we would just focus on the, the footwork and the sounds and there would just be like a boom mic. Uh, held up to our feet, and that's how we captured the sound. And then in post production, <laughs> wow! <laughs> post production, you put them together, and that's yeah, that's actually the process um, with most dance on film. Like even if it doesn't involve tap dance, um, just to get the the sound, the the sounds of the feet, mm -hmm. you know, scuffing around. Um, yeah. It's it's always the last. Uh, the last material that has to uh, be captured and it's always kind of like oh man we got it already though we did it on camera and now we have to do it again for the sound I have a crazy story that probably needs a little fact checking 
<laughs> uh, I heard um, from a friend, a very close friend, uh, Stanley Donen, who worked with uh, Gene Kelly on a lot of his films, who was a tap dancer. Gene Kelly was so busy, he would do the film, he would, he, you, would you would see the, the video of him, yeah. and Gene had to run off and do something else. And so Stanley is the one who's doing the most of the taps that you hear in some of the films. Oh, wow. Isn't that wild? That is wild. Wow. Great question. Right yes. here. Yeah, uh, first, I just want to congratulate you both personally on becoming an uncle to Tonzo. Yes. Yeah. Uh, father. Yes. Uh, and then just another question about West Side Story, which is how much say did you have in how the camera was going to film the dance? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I... I was a little nervous before signing on to the project in the first place um, uh, for many reasons. Um, but one was that I had never worked with this team and uh, and but once I I kind of said, all right, let's go for it. They were so um, inclusive and collaborative and there was such a partnership that was established from day one it began with steven walking every morning to my office at lincoln center he would get his you know his starbucks uh tea he doesn't drink coffee get his starbucks tea and he would walk to my office and we would sit together for a few hours every morning and just listen to the music and we would just kind of brainstorm together and make these kind of crude um, storyboard drawings for how we envision, you know, the dance at the gym to be, or cool, or, you know, any of any other uh, um, numbers that run through that film. Um, and that partnership really carried forward um, in a similar way to how, you know, Jack O'Brien took me under his wing. We would, you know, often commute together to location scout, um, we would, uh, you know, have dinners together. We would, uh, we would sit side by side every day on set for the 79 day shoot that we did just mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're there 12, 13, 14, 15 hours at our days and a lot of downtime, a lot of time to just like talk about anything. And, and also it was a chance for, for us to, to talk about, you know, the creative that we were aiming to achieve uh, with the film. And also for me to just kind of like learn from him. And he's such a master at his craft. I mean, he's really, really good at making films, <laughs> as you guys know, um, from his track record. And when I saw the film for the first time, I had that same thought. I was just like so proud of it and so grateful for being um, included in the, the, uh, the creative output. And also just in awe of like how of his skill and talent at filmmaking so yeah. mm -hmm. so cool yeah um could you talk a bit about empowering boys in dance pardon could you talk a bit about the empowering boys in dance i, I have some male students and i'd like to hear what you guys are doing with yeah them, what the goals are and Thank you. Yeah, we were running out of time. Thank you. Yes. We did want to talk kind of about that. And if you guys, when you were starting to dance, if you kind of did find this adversity um, and, you know, among from other people, maybe. And why do you feel like community programs like Empowering Boys in Dance are important to kind of go into the community, introduce boys to dance like you were through film and through other um, like going to Broadway? 
Um, yeah, I grew up in Salt Lake City, and if you weren't Mormon or if you weren't on the football team, you were an outcast. And I just want to be part of the team. I just want to be <laughs> and so I would only ever tell people that I tap danced. Heaven forbid I told people that I did ballet. And I'll never forget... Um, my studio that I went to uh, was close to my uh, middle school, and all the guys from the football team want, came to the dance studio one day because they wanted to see uh, the most popular girl in school uh, <laughs> dancing. And all they cared about was pointing and laughing at me through the window in my ballet class. And it was scarring. It was so awful. And I'll never forget how isolating it felt. But once you, when you have the dance bug, there's nothing else you can do. You just have to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's what was so magical about SAB is, yes, I started to fall in love with ballet, but I also was like, these are my people. Mm -hmm. We all have the same battle wounds. Mm -hmm. um, and we were able to be there for each other. And there was something so special about realizing, like, this is my community. Mm -hmm. And I think for those who are the only boys in their mm -hmm. in their dance schools, which is the majority of the majority of places, mm -hmm. um, that's why I felt like it was really important uh, to step out and and do more theater and more uh, TV and film because that's mm -hmm. how I access the arts. Mm -hmm. That's how I access dance. That's how I fell in love with it. Somebody came to an American in Paris um, afterwards. And it was my, my favorite thing anybody's ever said. They said, this is my eighth time coming to see your show. I love it so much. I just bought my first tickets to go see New York City Ballet. <gasps> Wonderful. And cool. that was like my mission. I came back to do one last show at New York City Ballet and have my farewell. And I just remember saying to the dancers, I'm still a part of you. I'm just going to do it out there so that they can come and see you guys. <laughs> because that's how you reach Mm -hmm. young young yeah. kids mm -hmm. and it's so it's so important to meet them where they're at yes and you know there it's 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 wild um you know these these opportunities that we're getting to infiltrate and show what dance can be and it doesn't matter who you are what you like it just let them dance mm -hmm. you know yeah. it's that's that's really important. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of the reasons why I committed to doing the West Side Story film uh, was to to get to work with like the next generation of interpreters of that mm -hmm. piece and to show the world this uh, this incredible uh, group of of talents and for young boys to then watch that film and see these guys moving uh, in the way that they do, um, which is really exceptional. And um, and I, I can't wait to see like kind of what comes from that over the years. And uh, that was such an important part of what influenced me, like the original West Side Story film uh, as a kid. And so, um, so to, to get the chance to sort of um, take the next step and, um, and offer that to the next generation is, is a huge part of why I wanted to be a part of that. And uh, yeah, I mean... I think hearing your stories kind of illustrates for us why these organizations like Empowering Boys in Dance that Vail Dance Festival has in partnership with Arts and Society are so important, and you guys are great examples of that. Absolutely. Maybe two more questions. Anyone else? Right here. Back there? Yeah. 
Yeah. So I got a. I thought it was great. Oh, thank you. You're so kind. Thank you. I just realized Joe Biden was in the audience because he was friends with some one of the one of the creatives. Oh, oh my God. That's wild. Frankenstein. So I had just left New York City Ballet, and my agent calls me and he goes, "So, I've got an off-Broadway play for you. They want you to do Frankenstein. They want you to choreograph it." I was like, "Okay, cool." So then I started diving into the character and and the story. Um, you know, it's not unlike what you go through as a young boy in Salt Lake City who has a dream of being a ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was examining those parts that people make you feel um, are ugly or undesirable, and to bring a lot of humanity to um, a character that is just shunned from society. Uh, because of the way they look, you can interpret that the way the way you are, who you love, what you do, um, the judgments that everybody puts on you. Um, I don't know. I felt like it was it was such a oh it was such a wonderful cathartic experience. And um, you know, being a choreographer was really fun because as being in a play, my first play. I thought, okay, if you don't lead with curiosity as an actor in a scene, it's so boring and it just, the scene doesn't work. And dance has the same ability to communicate that words do, if not more. The evolution of communication, right? There's no words to speak, you sing. If there's no song to sing, you dance. So dance has the ability to convey certain emotions that you can't put into words. So having that that platform as the dancer um, was really special to to give myself framework. Okay, I need to get from here to here in this amount of time. I want to explore what that is every single night in a different way so that it feels real and authentic. And the choreographer won't get upset. <laughs> I am a choreographer. Uh, so it was, it was really fun to get to explore um, that kind of storytelling and dance and make it feel really authentic. And it's not about what kind of lines you hit. It's not about how many turns you do. It's how can you convey in your body what you're feeling? And how does that become full body from a thought to these are the words, these are the text. Like, how can you make that feel really um, uh, uh, under- understood? From the audience's mm-hmm. perspective, so that was fun. Awesome. One more right here. So you guys are mind blowing, wonderful. But I just want to put in a plug here for these two. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> what they have done over the years is to bring out the insights of what you guys are like behind the scenes, mm-hmm. personalities, and it informs so much more about our understanding of what's going on up there in the stage. Amazing. Thank you. That's so nice. And on that note, <laughs> going in and, and plowing forward with an idea and your your business that you've been, you've created, it's it's a lot of work and it takes mm-hmm. a lot. So truly, kudos for, for making this happen. It's really awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you both for joining us, and thank all of you for coming. Thank out. you. Thank you so much. Special thank you to Tom Boyd for producing this episode.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.